Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 290 Truth is a Red Herring. We're joined again by Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod for a conversation on the meaning of the terms truth and enlightenment in the postmodern world. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Vincent Horn here for another interview slash conversation slash exploration. And today I am joined again by our friend, Ken Cloud. Uh, Ken, it's awesome to be speaking with you again. Uh, my pleasure. I, I enjoy our conversations very much, and I look forward to this one. Yeah, and last time we talked, we kind of had more of just a kind of free-form conversation-style interview, and it seemed like both of us enjoyed that. So we're going to do something similar today, which is a lot like conversations we were having when I lived in Los Angeles, and we would go hiking, and we just sort of just talk about all this stuff. Um, and I found those conversations really, really interesting. So it seems fitting to just kind of transplant that over into the kind of Buddhist geek space and just see what happens. It's fine with me. I, I, in fact, my preference because uh, I just don't feel like I'm an expert at anything. So I. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we'll talk about that. Because <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll want to know what you mean by that. Cool. So, and just a sense of what we wanted to explore um, today. I, I've been thinking a lot about truth and running up against uh, the impulse uh, to find the truth, uh, both interiorly and then also with people I've been working with, um, kind of in a meditation teacher role. And it just seems like something that is really common. In fact, I'm sort of remembering when I first got into meditation, I framed the whole goal as finding the truth. That was how I framed the entire thing that I was up to. And it and it wasn't just intellectual. It also felt really, really visceral, like I need to find the truth, figure out what's really happening here. The f first thing I'm going to say is that uh, I, I resonate very much with what you're saying. Uh, at, at certainly at certain phases of my, my own practice history, I was very concerned with the truth, uh, quotation marks, uh, and that's gone through a lot of different changes uh, over the years. As I've come to appreciate, and this may sound very surprising to people who listen to this, it's a bit of a red herring. And, it, it, I mean, uh, the reason I was very happy to read when you suggested this topic is that I had an experience, well, I guess it's five years ago now, which is very directly related to, to this uh, topic. Mm. Uh, I was reading a book, uh, and the book is uh, a book called Straw Dogs by a... Um, philosopher slash economist at the London School of Economics. And it is a very powerful attack on liberal humanism or critique 
And uh, as I taught, as I discussed with Stephen Batchelor, uh, he said, "Yeah, it, it's hard to refute his arguments, uh, which makes it very interesting." And hmm. during a break between two retreats that I was teaching, I was reading this book for the third time because I found some of the ideas in it so fascinating. And I read this line: uh, "Philosophers." I may be paraphrasing it. This may mean may not be perfect quotation. Uh, philosophers claim that they are seeking truth when, in fact, they are seeking peace. Mm. And when I read this line, everything fell out of my mind. Uh, and I had 18 people due to arrive at a retreat in a couple of days. I just finished teaching another retreat. And I read those two lines, and the very last thing I wanted to do was to teach that retreat. But I had to. Uh, and for the next uh, six to eight months or so, uh, I didn't know what was up and what was down, what was back and what was forward, what was left and what was right. My mind was so open and so clear, and so much changed. And one of the things that I realized is that I had been practicing for a very long time, probably since the very beginning of my practice, with the assumption that if I could find the truth, then all my problems would be solved. And I think you're relating to that by, by how you opened this up. And, uh, and I realized it was completely not true. It's <laughs> <laughs> a funny way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and it was so completely not true. That, and, and that was shattering. It was like, oh, the very basis of my motivation for practice has been a false assumption. Mm. I'm like, wow. And my relationship with teaching changed. How I taught changed. How I felt physically. Uh, I, I, it was a very, very profound shift. And so, and so it put me in mind of uh, something that I think is so, and this is the cultural or sociological aspect. That's why I, I threw that one in. That the, uh, I think it's, I can't remember, it's John 8.32 or John 16.32. It's one of the two. Uh, but it's, uh, know ye the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Christ says this. And this is, this permeates our culture very, very deeply. It's also the basis of uh, Marxism, actually. And, and that this whole idea that if we can know the truth, then everything will be taken care of. And it's very deep in our culture because we find the same thing in The Secret uh, and the, the way that My that's played book. out. In, <laughs> we need to talk about this, Vince. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, you take such pop cultural things as like uh, Indiana Jones or whatever. Uh, there's always this notion that there is this, this truth. Uh, and The X-Files, of course. There's this truth out there. And, it, and yes. 
we find it uh, also, in, in a certain sense, it's a kind of uh, a distortion or a reinterpretation or something of the scientific notion is, is that you're looking for the truth. Now, that isn't how I regard science myself uh, or mathematics or whatever, but it, it is how, how they are popularly regarded uh, without question. Sure. And the gospel is presented as the truth. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm here in Alabama now, so I've got that all around me. <laughs> and so I, I think there's a very strong sociological thing. I've touched a bit on the epistemological. The psychological uh, is that it's been my experience, and I can see this in myself, and I'll leave, this, leave you to decide this, whether this re- relates to you, but uh, when you grow up in a chaotic environment, then one of the characteristics of people who, who grow up in a chaotic environment is they think if they can just figure out what's going on, then they'll be able to manage it. So they're looking for the truth. There's a psychological disposition developed from that early experience of finding the truth. Because it's, 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 it's a way of coping in, in, in that moment. So that's a psychological take on it. So yes. I, th- I think it's a very rich topic. I think it's uh, something uh, people look for. And, and there's the other thing that I, I find is that people want to be able to rely on the truth because if they can rely on the tr- if there is such a thing as the truth about a situation – then it ends all arguments, supposedly. Because there's now no there's more the doubt. Yeah, there's no more doubt. Yeah, there's no more confusion. Settled. It's it's settled, and and in a certain sense, our legal system is supposed to be based on that, but it doesn't work that way in practice, and it particularly doesn't work that way in the modern era. And this is what a uh, philosopher politician in Italy, uh, Batami, I think, or something like that. Uh, says, uh, and he does a very deep exploration of what truth is in the modern age, because it isn't the set of facts anymore, because the facts are open to different sorts of interpretations, quite different interpretations. And so I I think one of the things that we're being faced with in today's age, and this is something you and I have discussed a a bit, is that uh, in the postmodern world, there isn't an absolute truth. There isn't even an agreed-upon truth. There are all of these different truths. <laughs> yes. And so tr- truth is dependent on context. And this is a, a very, very different world from the world in which I grew up in. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, I hear you know, phrases from, from different philosophers like truth claims that are contextually situated. Crazy phrases like that. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but it says it all. I, I, I would, uh, there's a shorter one which I came across recently where uh, fiction fails facts because in the modern world, facts are merely successful fictions. Hmm. Interesting. The first line of a poem that you read at, uh, at the first Buddhist Geeks conference, I, I've been going back. Oh, to yes, 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 yes. Only tortured Only... people seek truth. Only tortured yes. men. Yeah. yeah. I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because in some ways it's that torment or that torture of seeking truth that maybe is is in some ways the only way we can notice uh, the kind of problematic 
relationship with that idea of kind of finding the truth. Um, oh, that, that's okay. I mean, I'm going to answer your question a little differently. But what you've asked here opens up a very interesting uh, line that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, and I'm going to generalize it a little bit and then make it specific, if that's okay with you. The, the general thing is, and this is a practice point, whenever you find yourself um, really concerned, uh, latching on to something, get suspicious or be suspicious. That's the general thing. So let's suppose, for the sake of our conversation here, that you and I are really concerned with truth. Now, if we apply what I've just said, uh, let's be a little suspicious about that. Why am I concerned with truth so much? Why is it so important to me? Now, that sounds like, you know, completely, well, everybody's concerned with truth, but this, that actually isn't true in and of itself. And this links very quickly back to some of the uh, thoughts that I was expressing before. You know, it was, it's a coping mechanism. It's really important to me because it's, how I navigate the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if I say, if I ask myself, why am I so concerned with truth? I can actually feel the emotional drive there, the emotional investment in that. Yeah. Well, okay. Like and that's a good, you know, and 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 it has a such a hard and um. And it was a, uh, hard maybe the wrong word, but it, it's a very visceral thing. Uh, so there's a there's a very significant investment, and it's easy for me to imagine how that can distort how I would look at things because I'm so emotionally invested in this uh, insistence on truth. Yes. Okay. I wanted to tie some, just something in personally because I I feel like tracking this in terms of personal experience, like you started out with in the beginning the story of kind of reading this line and then suddenly things sort of dropping away for a moment. I well, no, no, for six or eight months. It's a long moment. <laughs> so, it's still with me, actually. Yeah. I, I wonder if in some ways, um, like, like for me, I think the term enlightenment could easily be a stand-in for the term truth. Like I'm seeking the truth or I'm seeking enlightenment. And I, of course, you know, have all these particular ideas about what that means. You know, I have these sort of models that I've inherited. In my own practice, it was a specific, you know, Mahasi Sayada style, noting meditation, progressive insight leading to the first stage of enlightenment. And then if you're lucky, you know, uh, some other stages will come. But very much a singular, clear pathway. And as you move, you know, down this gradual spectrum, you uh, get closer and closer to the truth of things. So this is my question. On the one hand, uh, within that context, some of those things are, in my experience, accurate descriptions of the phenomenology of experience, accurate descriptions of some things that, that shift or change. And that's amazing. But then on the other hand, as soon as I leave that context, or as soon as I look at it from another angle, like as soon as I even look at it from another Buddhist perspective, suddenly the whole question of what that enlightenment is and what it means gets challenged directly. And so for me, that's, that's part of why this question became so interesting uh, in the last few years, because it was clear to me that w the, whatever truth I thought I'd realized 
was, you know, clearly not being described in other systems and other people, uh, and it was easy to challenge it. Um, and there are, there are flaws and holes in, in the system. And it's like, oh, shit, if there's holes in the system, maybe the ship is sinking. Uh, could you give me an example of uh, one, uh, one or two of the challenges that you uh, found? Were... Yeah, what, one challenge uh, was the sort of s- constant self-evaluation, that uh, habit that I developed as part of my practice, and the way that I was always constantly trying to figure out, okay, how am I doing now and how does it line up with this external sort of evaluation criteria that I have um, or that I've inherited or both? And that was increasingly became a challenge. At one, because it was painful to be constantly trying to evaluate where I was. And two, I found that I, I no longer could. Um, I found that I didn't know what I was experiencing and how it related to the mom models, it didn't seem to match up anymore. Okay. Thank you. Uh, The word enlightenment is, uh, I think, has been a very problematic word. Uh, It was one of the earlier translations, uh, and I stuck with this, and as so often happens with early translations, probably wasn't the ideal word and it created has created all kinds of problems in the which we're still dealing with uh, I almost saw the, the word in Sanskrit of course is Bodhi which I usually I, I prefer to translate as awakening but if you look at the uh, and I'm more familiar with the Tibetan than with the Sanskrit um, but the Tibetan is composed of two words Jong and Chup and Jong refers to a, a clearing away process, uh, a clearing away of uh, confusion and distortion, or if you want to put it in more Western terms, a projection, beliefs and projections, I think, would be there. And chup refers to uh, the growth um, and the flowering of qualities and abilities. Interesting. So... When you when you hear that, you don't hear anything about truth. You're clearing away distortions and things that prevent you from seeing things, experiencing things clearly, and you're developing capacities and abilities. And that that is the process of awakening. In fact, I'm working on a piece of uh, writing right now, in which I define the work that I've, I do with Unfettered Mind as helping people find a path which progressively clears away the beliefs and projections and develops um, abilities and attention and awareness. That's it. And and how far one goes on that path, I'm not sure that there is any end to it. Uh, I'm not sure that there is any end result. I mean, you know, you just get better and better and, and better. And, and we see this in every other area of human endeavor. You know, you get basketball players and you know you get uh, Michael Jordan and then you get uh, Shaquille O'Neal and then you get uh, so so, I mean you know and who is the you know each one of these they're building incredible abilities is any one of them uh, the enlightened or an enlightened basketball player well it's kind of an absurd question when you put it that way 
And I, I think it would be helpful to look at spiritual practice uh, in the same way, is that one develops abilities, and, the, and there is talent under all these things. And, uh, and you watch someone, some of these people play, and it's extraordinary. Uh, and, and, and you can learn, and uh, they can inspire you to, to play basketball yourself. Uh, to play basketball better and the same tennis, but I th- and I think it's exactly the same thing in the spiritual arena. So I'm not sure that it makes sense really to talk about uh, a state of enlightenment as more a process of awakening. Does that help? Uh, it brings up some more questions. Um, it does. Cool. It is interesting. I mean, it's very helpful. But I, I had a couple questions come up as you're describing it that way. Um, so with the Tibetan kind of uh, words and breaking that down, you know, clearing away and then the cultivation or development of certain uh, certain kinds of capacities. The question I have, though, is isn't it also the case that every tradition, even if they have that idea, that they also have pretty, pretty specific and sometimes fixed ideas about what gets cleared away and how, and then also what developed and how, and which one of those things are most important. And isn't that itself kind of a model? We start constructing this kind of model for what the idealized kind of person is or the idealized spiritual practitioner or whatever. Uh, I I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that uh, each culture develops their own ideas about what spiritual attainment or spiritual awakening looks like. Uh, and, and thus emphasizes different aspects of practice. Uh, and I, I, would, I would go further that, because I agree with you very completely on this, and it's something I've, I've given more than a little thought to. The traditions that are handed down uh, and that we receive are the ones that a certain set of people found worked for them and their own spiritual aspirations. And so there's kind of a reinforcement that over time, the system selects people who are ego- who, for whom it works, and they're the ones who continue it. Interesting. Okay. Now, the reason I had to face this myself is that in the early 90s, it was very clear to me because of challenges I was facing in my own practice, that all of the traditional doors were closed. I'd learned these practices. I'd been trained in them very deeply. I knew how they worked. I knew that they did work, and I knew how they worked. And I could explain that and guide others very effectively. However, whenever I've tried to practice them myself, I just got sick really quickly. large energy imbalances, all kinds of problems that I was facing. And so I can remember very clearly sitting outside my office building in my car, asking myself the question, what happened to the people in previous generations for whom the system didn't work? Mm. And then I realized when I asked that question, each of them had to find their own path. And I imagine many of them did. But that their path did not get transmitted because it wasn't part of the orthodox system. And so each generation, people for whom the system didn't work, 
had to find their own path. And that's when I had the inspiration for what I wanted to do with Unfettered Mind, which was to create an, a, a place, quotation marks, that's a metaphor, not a physical place, for people whose path took them outside the traditional institutions and, uh, and frameworks. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.